This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome best-selling historian and novelist Simon Seabag Montefiore, all the way from London. How are you, Simon? Very well, thank you. Great to be talking to you. Well, good to be talking uh, to you. Simon Montefiore has uh, written a great deal about Russian history, Catherine the Great, Potemkin, and Stalin. He's also written novels and has written and presented five television series for the BBC. And he has a new book that's out called The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918. The Romanovs, you say, the most successful dynasty of modern times, ruling a sixth of the world's surface for three centuries. What accounted for the longevity of this dynasty? Um, Of course, luck, but also (laughs) talent, hard work, ambition, and belief in the Russian Empire and sacred autocracy. I mean, they had some very talented czars. One must remember that. And though one thinks of the um, family as a sort of cursed disaster, doomed, doomed to um, end in their downfall and revolution, in fact, um, you know, for, for most of those, for sort of 250 of those years, they were dynamic, successful, and constantly expanding the Russian Empire. And it's easy to forget that even Nicholas II, right up into the 1890s, was expanding Russia into, into Manchuria and Korea. Hmm. Let's uh, go back before the uh, Romanovs. Uh, I, uh, one person who's not a Romanov, I believe, is Ivan the Terrible. He preceded them, correct? Yes, he did, and he was not a Romanov, but he married. Um, he married a Romanov, and um, his first wife, Anastasia, um, was the was the mother of his of his sons, and therefore, and also the kind of love of his life. And so when she died, he never recovered, Ivan the Terrible, really. But that was the link of the Romanov family to, to the old dynasty. And that was why, in 1613, they were able to become czars at a time when Russia was in complete downfall, um, falling apart in the time of troubles, invaded from every direction, a failed state. And in 1613, they chose a young member of the family, um, Michael, to be the czar of a new dynasty. And he looked like a very unlikely um, character to be a successful warlord. He was, he was young, he was ill, he was not particularly clever, um, he was probably illiterate. Um, and yet, under him, the empire struck back. And from then on, the Romanovs really kind of functioned as a sort of military supreme command um, of Russia, um, right up until 1917. Let me ask you about uh, one of the leading lights of the Romanovs, Peter the uh, Great. Uh, he, he uh, well, he's well known in history. He's, he's just sort of well known uh, in in common. I mean, we you hear the name Peter the Great, you know what he, you're talking about. Um, um, you do. I mean, he's an extraordinary character. I mean, he was everything about him um, was excessive and brilliant. I mean, he was one of the great statesmen um, of all time, um, of any country. Um, He knew what he wanted to do. He was able to do it. But he was also completely wild, a terrifying tyrant, half monster, half genius. He he did his own torturing. Um, he, He worked in his torture chambers. He took part in beheading his enemies. 
He tortured his own son to death, therefore destroying the succession to his own kingdom. Um, he he um, held wild parties in which um, naked dwarfs and naked girls and top ministers danced around naked, and where the drinking was so excessive that three of his top ministers actually died of alcohol poisoning. Mm. And yet, he achieved so much too. And he was, you know, he was just an extraordinary character. And every Romanov afterwards wanted to be him. And if there's one person that President Vladimir Putin wants to emulate, it is mm. Peter the Great. Mm. Now, Peter the Great, uh, I, I sort of like go by these uh, dependable things. I looked up his dates, 1672 to 1725. So that's the time we're talking about. Now, yeah. did, did he move the capital? Or, I mean, he... Uh, or to. Uh, what he called Petrograd? Yes, he did. Um, yeah, he did. Um, he, um, you know, he created a new capital there, and it was St. Petersburg. And it was, it was the result, it was the fruit of his managing to defeat the leading military power of Europe, the Swedes. The Swedes. And uh, that enabled him to found a new capital city with a new ruling spirit, not the dark, obscurantist orthodoxy, of Muscovy and Moscow, but an, the, a, a westernized uh, military power um, with a window onto the west, and that was St. Petersburg, which is today um, again called St. Petersburg. And um, that was one of his great achievements. But it was built on the hard labor of tens and 20,000 people who died in the building of it. Everything he did was both brutal and brilliant. Mm. And also, wasn't he seen as uh, kind of facing Western? I mean, he took a lot of ideas from uh, Western Europe. Oh yeah, I mean, but we often mistake um, we often mistake you know West, uh, Russian Westernizers for um, oftentimes they they merely want to borrow our Western technology in order to create great armies to defeat us. So, of course, that's very true today and. It was very true then under, under Peter the Great. I mean, he wanted to make Russia a great military power and to take Russia into the, into the West. And so by the time he died, um, he had the Baltic, he had Poland, and he'd also you know, had Russian troops even in Germany. So he'd expanded westwards in a huge way. And, um, and you know, he, he still believed in the sort of in promoting Russian power. And he absolutely believed in being the Tsar the autocrat of Russia, the absolute power, the holy, the holy monarch. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, it's this idea of being a czar, ruling by instinct, having absolute power, um, that also your president, Donald Trump, also aspires to in many ways. He, he wants to be an American czar. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times the phrase uh, holy autocracy. Uh, yeah. What was holy about this? <laughs> what does that mean, really? Um, it, it, I mean, just as, um, just as Marxism, Leninism, was a rigid ideology, so was sacred autocracy, an idea that the Tsar was a God-given ruler, blessed by God, and who could never share power or had his power diluted in any way. And the belief was this was a Russian way, um, a Russian um, system, and that it was the only way Russia could be ruled, and that this was a very Slavic Russian concept in a, in a, in a, in a Russian world, and that this, that this um, orthodox, sacred autocrat had a mission to the world to bring Russian culture to it. And 
you know, this is a, this is a very strong strain in Russian power all the way through its history, right from um, the time of the fall of the Byzantine Empire when the Russian start, Russian rulers started to call themselves czars, right up through the communist period when it was, of course, a dis- different mission to the world, mm-hmm. and right up to today when President Putin still talks about the Russian way, a Russian culture, the Russian world. Mm-hmm. And the implication is, despite the trappings of democracy around him, that he also manifests this, um, th- this, this idea. So it's a very important idea and goes right through Russian history from the Romanovs up to today. And in the days of the Romanovs, was this a holy autocracy in concert with and league with the Russian church? Yes. And, you know, at the beginning of the Romanov period, the Russian church was very, uh, was, was, was very powerful, almost sometimes more powerful than, or as powerful as the Tsar. But then Peter the Great, who had an understanding of these things and was very bored by, this, by the um, endless dirges of, of the Orthodox services, um, he changed it and made the Orthodox Church, not, he abolished the, the post of Patriarch and made it into a ministry, basically, in his government. And so it's remained. So though the Orthodox Church is very, was very powerful and very important for the rest of the Romanov period, actually the Romanov Tsars themselves were really head of the Church. And, of course, today as well, under Putin, the, the Orthodox Church is again very important, and it is again a sort of extension of the presidency. Hmm. Well, let's move on in the chronicle of well-known czars, and there, there are 20 czars and, and czarinas in the Romanov dynasty. Uh, we've had Peter the Great. Catherine the Great comes along. Uh, her years in power, I believe, 1762 to 1796. Why was she yeah. great? She was a great character. I mean, she was, first of all, she was no relation to the, um, to the Romanov family by blood, but she married into it. She was German. Uh, she came at 14 to Russia, terrifying journey. She was incredibly talented, politically astute, if not brilliant. Um, she, was, she was sensitive to people. She understood. She, was, she had great emotional intelligence, what we call today. And she was also an, an, an amazing imperial statesman who expanded Russia into Ukraine, annexed the Crimea, uh, bombarded Syria. If these things sound familiar... Well, they are, because President Putin today has expanded Russia in directions that really were started under under Catherine the Great. Well, I've heard but, about uh, Ukraine and Crimea makes sense to me, but she also was involved with Syria? Yeah, she bombarded, this, she bombarded Syria um, with her fleet in the 1770s while fighting. It was then an Ottoman province. My point is that it was she who really decided, who really decided to make, tried to make Russia a, a Near Eastern power. And of course, that has been very important in Russian history ever since. The Crimean War in the 1850s was really fought for that cause. Um, the, the idea of um, uh, the, the, the dream of the Romanovs was always to take Istanbul, to take Constantinople. And uh, even in the sort of World War I, Nicholas II was still trying to get uh, Russian control over Jerusalem and over um, Istanbul. So so this is a very strong part of Russian history, and we're seeing it very much today in the Middle East. Hmm. And uh, in terms of Catherine the Great becoming Tsarina, she did so by overthrowing her own husband? 
she overthrew an, an, a, her own husband, who was Peter III, who was a disastrous character. Um, he was murdered soon afterwards. And though she probably didn't order his murder, she knew that he had to be overthrown and what, um, had to be murdered. And one of the problems with this system of autocracy, which we have today as well as in, in Zara's times, um, is that <clears throat> it's very, you know, it's, it's impossible to remove a, a, a czar or, a, or an autocrat, and, and they, it's impossible for them to retire peacefully. So the succession is always a big problem. As you know, she then, uh, she then in, enjoyed a sort of series of young, young, younger lovers who, um, whom she was usually in love with, and she was more of a sort of serial monogamist than a nymphomaniac. Um, that's a very unfair libel, really. But um, as she got older, she had younger and younger lovers, and some of them were utterly, utterly ridiculous popinjays. But amongst them was Prince Potemkin, uh, who was her real love of her life, her partner in ruling, almost her co-czar. And that was a great love affair told in their amazing love letters, which are both passionate, political, funny and fascinating and I use them a lot and in fact this book is full of um, full of the letters you know used by um, between these wonderful characters and some of them are totally outrageous uh, as you know if you've read the book mm -hmm. um, some of them are so um, so sexually explicit that they they might make your eyes water <laughs> uh, you write it was hard to be a czar and you've talked about this already there were six czars who were murdered and even if you weren't murdered as a czar or czarina you probably uh, had to spend a lot of money on security yeah i mean it's worse than that cause it's six of the last 12 czars were murdered which is which is uh, quite a lot as you can imagine and um it was very hard to be a czar a czar had to be so many different things it was you had to be virtually a genius you virtually had to be peter the great to really fulfill the the role in its entirety and of course very few people are geniuses, and it was also very dangerous. It was a very exposed position, and I think um, the reason why I take up um, in the in the in the book in the, in the book the Romanovs, I take up this story right the way from Ivan the Terrible right the way up to Stalin and and, and Putin today, is because there's such continuity in 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 this in the dilemmas of Russian autocracy. There's, there's such continuity. It's so similar the way the court actually ran. Even though the systems are so different between the Romanov monarchy, the secretary generals of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. and, of course, the presidency today in the 21st century in an age of Wi-Fi and Internet and so on. But the way the actual entourage worked is incredibly similar. And what we don't understand when we look from the outside, it looks like these czars are so powerful, we envy their, the plenitude of their power. And I think that's what Donald Trump finds very attractive about President Putin, for example. But what we don't see is that in a system with no rules, no checks, and no balances, the Tsar himself, the autocrat, is very exposed, and there's nothing to protect him. So it's impossible for a Tsar to be paranoid. Paranoia suggests that the, the threats are imaginary. But in fact, I mean, any ruler of Russia who, who rules as an autocrat has to rule in a state of permanent uh, ferocious vigilance. Hmm. 
We're talking with uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore, author of The Romanoffs, 1613 to 1918. It's published by a vintage uh, division of uh, Random House. We'll be back with uh, Simon in just a moment. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast, and if you'd like to keep us going, uh, please donate to our GoFundMe campaign. Uh, go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017, and it's easy to make a donation online. If you'd rather do it in the mail, make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Back now to a conversation with Simon Montefiore about his book, The Romanoffs, 1613 to 1918. Talked about Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. Um, we also have, after Catherine, uh, a, a czar named Paul, uh, who uh, is not a happy story. No, I mean um, Paul. Um, Paul is, um, is is a tragic figure, and you know he was her. He was Catherine the Great's son, with the husband that she had murdered effectively, and um, he was very like his his real father. His he was he was um, he was almost um, almost hopeless at, um, at, at at politics. He managed to offend every section of Russian society. All the important, the army. The aristocracy and so on, and he was—he was so unwise. He was almost mad, and he was. Some people call him Paul the Mad. Um, but so when he was murdered, um, I found out a lot of new material about the conspiracy that killed him, and it's really fascinating stuff. But when they broke into his when they broke into his room, they hated him so much they beat they not they not only beat him to death. When he was dead, they stomped on his head with their boots in a frenzy. And so that was the end of Paul. And um, he was succeeded by Alexander I, Catherine the Great's grandson. And he was the, the czar of war and peace, uh, who, was, who was czar when Napoleon invaded Russia and burned Moscow. But then he turned it around and uh, went to Paris himself for his army. Yes, I mean, he was, he was actually, he's actually a very underestimated czar, I believe, um, because... Um, he, you know, he turned it around. He held his throne. He managed just to hold his nerve. I mean, under great um, stress, and he then put together the coalition that that marched all the way from Moscow, effectively, to Paris, and destroyed Napoleon. So, quite an achievement, and you know that makes him, I think, one of the one of the greatest Russian czars. And during the war, when the U.S. ambassador congratulated Stalin on taking Berlin. Stalin immediately replied, "Yes, but Alexander the First took Paris." <laughs> now, Alexander the the Second, eighteen fifty five to eighteen eighty one, he liberated the serfs. Yes, he's one of the most attractive characters because I have to say, a lot of the a lot of the um, czars in this book are total monsters. And by the way, you can just read this book as a sort of as a saga of incredibly um, debauched, murderous depraved um, uh, characters, you know, that many of whom almost seem to belong in Game of Thrones um, <laughs> rather than a history book at all. But, um, but also you can study it um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of examination of the effect of power on one family. But in any case, Alexander II, as you say, 
he was he was the one who liberated the serfs, which were the slaves of Russia, and he corresponded at that time with the person who across the world was liberating the slaves of America, Abraham Lincoln. And it's ironic that, you know, the autocracy of Russia was the best ally of the, uni- the Unionists, the North, of Abraham Lincoln during the American Civil War, while Britain and France, it, at various times and for various reasons, lent towards the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And he was a very attractive character, Alexander II, as I said, and it was he that had this great love affair with Princess Katya, uh, which, is, which is chronicled in their love letters, which no one had really read before. And these are the love letters, which I've used a lot in the book, which are really the most sexually explicit letters, uh, I think, ever written by a politician in any era, then or now. Hmm. And now uh, we'll spend the end of our conversation with Simon Montefiore uh, discussing the the last of the Romanovs, Tsar Nicholas, uh, coming to the throne in 1894, I believe, uh, and then was killed in 1918 uh, during the Russian Revolution. One um, link to the to the West. I mean, his wife, right, was a, uh, a granddaughter of uh, Queen Victoria of England. That's right. Um, Ale- Alexandra was, was, was a granddaughter, one of her favorite granddaughters. Though Queen Victoria always said she's absolutely unsuited to be um, an empress, and especially the empress of Russia, because she was extreme, even as a young girl, she was extremely serious, terrible with people, an appalling neurotic, um, and extremely rigid and dogmatic and um, sanctimonious. And all of these were to prove absolutely catastrophic characteristics for a Tsarina of Russia. And, you know, they've been very romanticized by somewhat indulgent historians who've treated Nicholas and Alexandra as a sort of wonderful domestic love story. But in fact, they were ruling politicians as well. Uh, they, were extremely, they were extremely unwise, self-centered, duplicitous, arrogant, of savage anti-Semites, by the way, and um, their mishandling of Russia um, was was egregious, was Mm. egregious. And, you know, um, Nicholas II, though he was kind of, uh, he felt underqualified to be Tsar when he became Tsar, in fact, so was every, so was every successor to the throne. It was impossible to be qualified to be Tsar. But he then embraced the role, absolutely. And and worked incredibly hard to claw back every power that he could for, um, for the Tsar. But he wasn't able to handle the power that he got. And, and that sort of caught up with him in the end. And of course, you know, they also indulged their, their mysticism in promoting Rasputin. And that was also a disastrous uh, decision mm-hmm. for, the, for Russia and for them. And for them. And he was this uh, mystic uh, Russian uh, monk who got very close to the royal family. Yes, I mean, he, he seemed to, I mean, Nicholas Alexandra believed absolutely, with fanatically, that, um, you know, Russia didn't need the sort of indulgent middle class and nobility um, of, uh, of St. Petersburg, but just, um, but just needed the, the, the mystical um, link between the serfs, the peasants, and the czar. And so 
uh, the re- one of the reasons why they were so keen on uh, Rasputin was he seemed to be the personal manifestation of that, of that link. He seemed to be the authentic proof that this link existed. And that was really his most important role. But his second one was as a sort of trusted psychiatrist, priest, advisor um, to, to the imperial couple. And the last, what, the last reason was, of course, his help in, in calming um, the bleeds of the hemophiliac son, Alexei, that little boy, mm-hmm. the heir to the throne, whose illness in many ways seemed to symbolize the obsolescence of the dynasty. Now, Nicholas actually abdicates, correct? I mean, after a disastrous World War I and then the, the Russian Revolution. Um, yeah, I mean, World War I was, was a, a terrible test for, for Russia and for the, and for the crown. Uh, but Nicholas II made it much worse. He, he really did give the power to run the government to Alexandra and to Rasputin. And they were utterly unqualified to do this. And so, so you know, in a time when Russia was under its greatest stress and greatest test, um, Nicholas just made a series of catastrophic errors. And these ultimately led to a spontaneous revolution um, in February 17, 1917 and to his abdication. But he didn't, abdicate, he didn't abdicate for his son. He abdicated for his brother. And so his brother, Martin II, was, the, was technically the last czar or the Romanov dynasty, even though he was only czar for a day. Hmm. And then um, Nicholas, Alexandra, and their their family were were killed by the uh, the ultimate winners of the revolution, the Bolsheviks. Yes, I mean this was this was this was this was their doom, if you like. I mean, if they if the Bolsheviks hadn't come to power, it's quite likely that the the Romanovs wouldn't have been killed, or not certainly not the children, but. When Lenin came to power, he was absolutely a ruthless, um, a ruthless radical who believed that, as he said, um, uh, revolutions are meaningless without firing squads. And he decided in the end, under, under, again, under great stress, when it looked like the white armies opposing the Bolsheviks might, might actually get very close to overthrowing the new Soviet republic, he allowed and he gave the orders that Nicholas and Alexandra, and all the children, including the four, da- the four daughters and the son, could all be murdered in cold blood. And this murder was, 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 um, was the most bungled execution. Instead of taking one second, it took about 30 minutes of bloody, screaming, agonizing chaos. And writing it, for me, was, was difficult, was heartbreaking. Hmm. And now, uh, a century later, and you've mentioned this uh, throughout the uh, interview, you see parallels between the Romanovs and the current leader of uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin. Yes, I mean, I mean, this is very important, and that's why in the book I really take it up to to to, to Putin and even Donald Trump, um, because uh, Putin undoubtedly sees himself uh, as a, as a modern as a modern czar. Um, he's really a fusion of the sort of Stalinist general secretaries and the Romanov czars. Uh, and also, you know, he's a person of the present as well. So he's a sort of hybrid, like, like, you know, like we all are, in effect. But the, the important thing is that he looks back to the great rulers of Russia uh, without ideology. So for him, the great czars are, you know, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and Stalin. And the disastrous czars are people like Nicholas II and Gorbachev. And 
he aspires and em- aspires to emulate someone like Peter the Great or, or Nicholas the First, who were, you know, who were for the main part enormously successful czars. And he reads he reads a lot of biographies. Putin. It's the only thing he reads, I think. And you know, he's, he 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 carefully emulates um, various aspects of the czardom of the Romanovs and is very aware of Russian history. And that's why, in so many ways. He, the way he runs government is typical of the Romanov Tsars. And so you cannot understand Putin today without mm-hmm. understanding the Romanov. Well, Simon uh, Seabag Montefiore, I thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us on the Historian's Podcast. You have a good day. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. And uh, Simon is author of the book The Romanovs, 1613-1918, to the dynasty that ruled uh, Russia for all those years. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.